0: Here we are with another episode of Research Conversations with host V. Vale. Today we're talking to Tyler Hubby, who has just made a film. Tony Conrad, Completely in the Present. Welcome, and thanks for listening.
1: Well, thanks for coming to our North Beach office. I don't even know where you live normally.
2: I I normally live in Los Angeles, but I used to live in San Francisco. That's
1: how you recognized... George Kuchar up on our wall, the filmmaker.
2: George was my teacher at the Art Institute.
1: Oh, In the early must, 90s. <laughs> you must tell me more about that because we love George. He came over for dinner and stuff and we put out a book on him.
0: Me too. Oh, wait, you did it, George? Yeah. You were yeah. I was we'll a, give a you TA.
2: Oh, nice. Which yeah. book is it?
1: It's just called George Kuchar. It's a little baby oh, book. Oh, okay. I don't know if I we'll know give that you one. one.
2: I had his uh, what was it? Confessions from a Cinematic Cesspool was that the one that he did with Mike, and Mm -hmm. uh, this woman that I know who had a strange obsession with me borrowed it and never gave it back, and it it was my autographed, personal autographed copy. And it's one of those things, you know. Like I don't ascribe a lot of value to objects, but there are a few that are important, Mm -hmm. and like that because he wrote a special note to me. I used to look after Blackie. You know, because we were neighbors in the mission. I was on 17th and he was on 19th. So I used to look after his cat sometimes.
0: Well, he used to cat sit for us. And me also before I was here, my cat up on Russian Hill. There you go. And then I'd see my apartment in a video with him having people over and showing the cat. And I could see what happened when I was gone.
1: Oh that's that's an amazing coincidence. I had I had no idea and I'm happy of course to hear that cuz you know we like to think we're part of a big overarching countercultural continuum and we're just you know we're trying to give something for the future too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got me on there. But no it's it's true. I mean that's kind of what all this is about. It's just sort of showing that there is some continuum of countercultural thought or antagonistic thought or creative creative resistance.
1: Yeah, or just plain daring to break the cliches and try and do something, quote, original, unquote. Yeah, try. Yeah, to, to be original, you must, I don't know. What's that? It's up on our door. It's some ancient saying, like, in order to be original, you must be destructive, or I don't know, it's something like that, in terms of old ideas, conventional ideas. Sure, sure. So, okay, the 90s to now, and you lived here, and um, let's, is this your first
0: feature film?
2: It's the first feature film I've done as a director. I've edited numerous Documentaries and been a producer, a co-producer on documentaries. Made lots of short experimental films, but this is the first one where I'm where I'm everything.
1: (laughs) I noticed that there's several women helping you in the credits, like producer or whatever.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) anybody can get to help, but no, it's been great. My wife's one of the producers on the film as well, and. And then I have a a neighbor of ours who is a friend that we met when our children were toddlers at the library, was also a filmmaker, and she volunteered herself to come on board as as a producer. When I really needed someone to do it, I'd been making this film for years and years and years on my own, by myself. And when it was time to really kind of ramp it up and get serious about finishing it, and, you know, get things legalized and sort of start, I needed help. So I, I, I got in touch with uh, Christine Beebe, who's my neighbor in Los Angeles, and Paul Williams, who's from the UK. And he found me over Facebook.
0: Uh, Paul Williams, he's not the one who worked with Throbbing Gristle, is he?
1: No, well, there's, there's a famous writer named Paul Williams, but I thought he's a the founder of Crawdaddy Magazine. There, I, there's
2: also a very short composer, singer, songwriter named Paul Williams.
1: That's right. Short, literally. <laughs>
2: yeah. That's not him.
1: That's not him. That's That's right. That's right. But I—I'm sure it's like extremely difficult to finish, uh, shall we say, a no-budget documentary feature film project that you've launched single-handedly almost.
0: Yeah. Excuse me.
2: Oh. Yeah. It takes forever. I mean, I started—I started filming Tony Conrad when I was still a student at the Art Institute. In 1994, uh, he was, that's when he was just starting to do these drone performances, really in public. And uh, the Table of the Elements record label, which was also founded here in San Francisco before it moved to Atlanta, uh, was you know, putting this Faust record out that he had done. And uh, there was a little tour and some concerts, and so I started filming that stuff. I remember I left school. I didn't finish my...
0: Whatever, the, sem-
2: the semester or something, I left and said, I'm going on the road with a bunch of crazy musicians, but I'm filming it all, so that should count as credit. And
0: they passed <laughs> And you. I came
2: back, and I came back. I had all this
0: footage.
2: Uh, yeah, it was pretty hard to flunk out of the Art Institute. <laughs> In a to, good way.
1: You had to really try hard.
0: I know a few people who they tried to flunk, but, yeah, it, but it was under... Um, Question. Mostly,
2: I, mostly I, you just drop out.
0: Right. Well, the one person had made two narrative of a film, and they said, wait a minute, this isn't Hollywood. Oh, that's stuff funny. Stuff like that. That's hilarious. Yeah. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Someone who made a film on with George in it. Right. I don't know what I mean, the unless, result unless you're doing
2: a satire mm-hmm. that engages with all kinds of formal critique of Hollywood films, then you can do a Hollywood film. But you have to argue that. You have to be able to argue that.
0: (laughs) Right. It's all about the arguing, really. You
2: can present a straight-up narrative film, and if you can couch it as a critique of straight-up narrative film because it's masquerading as straight-up narrative film, then you get an A. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, so um, continuing on from continuing... You're continuing to make independent films that are not pandering to the lowest common denominator status quo standards by how films were judged. And, um, and I, we, were, we were slightly interrupted when you were telling me about how difficult it is to finish. I am interested in all that. You started it in 94 shooting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was shooting ostensibly, you know, as promotional material for the record label. Right? Like, let's get these concerts on tape, and, let's, and I would shoot on high eight, you know, with multiple cameras, though. That, I, I figured that's the one thing I could do that would add production value. Is if I had three or four cameras at good angles, once you cut that together, and if you cut it together well, it doesn't matter that it's shot on high eight. And also, we were getting good board recordings. So I was trying to be a little bit technically smart while still doing it for next to nothing. In fact, some of the shows, uh, I would just go through the line of people who were outside before it opened and see who brought a camcorder. And I'd, and I'd say, listen, if you film, you want to film the show, okay, great. But if you film with my tape and give it back to me, I'll give you an all-access wristband and free beer backstage. Are you in or out? And nice. just about everybody except maybe one extremely weird guy said, yeah, Sure you know, and I'd make VHS dubs for them, most of them, so there might have been a few people I forgot over the years, but uh, that was sort of the idea, so I could have this all-volunteer army, and I just sort of gave them some very basic technical instructions, you know, film students, remember, when you're trying to sync multiple cameras, don't keep turning it on and off, right. <laughs> you know, let it roll, yeah. so I have one sync point, because once I, you know, And I I would always do things like I had a camera strobe with me. So if I knew all the cameras were rolling, I'd just fire off a picture in the room, and then I'd have a flash frame before the show, or even during the show, because it's like you can get away with it. It looks like someone's taking a picture. So I would just take a flash during the show, and then I could have sync marks. (laughs) I mean, I was trying to think, you know, in the crudest form, like how am I going to sync up multiple Hi8 tapes? I mean, now we're we're in the... This is in the 90s, where, you know, computer editing was still kind of a dream. I mean, expensive production companies are, had uh, Avid's. They were brand new, but I couldn't get my hands on one. It's one of the reasons I ended up moving to Los Angeles from San Francisco was because I had some friends down there who were working in production companies and doing all this digital post-production on computers, and I really... I just figured that's what I need. You know, I'm not... I don't want to hang out, I can't hang out here and cut 16 millimeter on flatbeds or do 3 quarter inch video the, th- the way to edit media is going to be on computers and if I can just land myself a job doing it, I'll learn it on the job and that's exactly what I did and I moved to LA and I was working the night shift as a sound editor but I learned a lot about doing that stuff and learned the early versions of Avid and so I sort of taught myself a skill you know, not a skill that I would have picked up at the Art Institute Uh Those skills were about critical thinking, you know. But the hands-on job skills, I just picked up on the job. And then I found myself, you know, working in some very funny low-budget movies. I remember that the first movie I worked on as a sound editor was called Pterodactyl Woman of Beverly Hills, which sounded like a George Cuchar title, actually. So it was kind of, I was very delighted by that. Uh, but I've, I just eventually ended up in documentary because that actually was kind of where a lot of the smart kids were hanging out. Oddly, a lot of the art school graduates that I knew from CalArts and SFAI and around were working in documentary. It was a, It's a really free form, you know, doing nonfiction. You can do a lot of stuff, and it's low cost.
0: You can also get funding a little easier, maybe. Really? Or yeah, sell yeah, it. Or?
2: Yeah, it depends. Sometimes you can. You know, like a, a scripted narrative film requires, you know, you either have to have a crazy gimmick, like some kind of horror thing or some kind of crazy action thing or some cult thing, or you got to get actors. I mean, you know, I'm always telling my wife who makes narrative films, it's like, you know, you got to have one gimmick. And a, nar- a famous and, actor. Or just a name, something, what's name. The, like what's the thing that's the selling point that when people are reading through the catalog of films, they go, oh, that seems kind of interesting. What's that gimmick that's going to jump out? Like you've either got an actor doing some kind of bizarre performance or it's a really clever use of a horror genre or some other genre. You know, so so here's my gimmick. My gimmick's a middle-aged naked man flying in space. But, um, no, I mean, you know, so that was kind of it. Working in documentaries is just really fun and expressive. And, you know, it's... True stories, if you really tell them right, are just incredibly engrossing. They just, they, I'm, you know, you never get tired of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, so, wait, now what was that band you were on tour with? I missed the name. Okay, that, that whole tour, I was on tour with the band Faust. Faust? Faust. From the, from the 70s? From the 70s. 60s? It's
2: From the 60s and 70s, that's right. They were doing their first ever U.S. tour in 1994. And they started in Atlanta, Georgia, playing in a parking lot. And they blew out the power during their set. It was notorious. And then uh, they did a thing, at, at an art space called Real Artways, which was in, I want to say, Hartford, Connecticut. I might be wrong about that. And then they did a strip-down set at the Knitting Factory with Tony Conrad, uh, where they recreated the Outside the Dream Syndicate record. That was the first time they ever played that live publicly, and we filmed that, and that's in the documentary. And then we went to Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, did a show here at the Great American Music Hall Mm -hmm. where the audience got a hold of the chainsaws and started destroying the furniture. So uh, the show was actually... would have been profitable, except uh, uh, the band and the promoter had to pay all these fees and damages. (laughs) So because so much stuff got broken. Uh, Were
0: they getting people from the community in on the show? Like, they did that recently.
2: Well, there were some uh, local U.S. musicians who were kind of joining them on stage. Uh, In fact, for the show here, I think Erling Wold, the composer and uh, musician, played with them. He he did a studio session, I know for sure, because I filmed that, but the concert here was quite insane. It was delightful, but it was kind of nuts. And then we did a show in Death Valley, uh, which was a call-and-response kind of show in the desert. And there's a video of that on my Vimeo page, the Death Valley show, with Keiji Haino from Japan.
0: Haino? Yeah. Wow.
2: And uh, that was on Friday the 13th in, I want to say, May? May? Friday the 13th, I think, in 1994.
0: And here they had people planted in the audience. I mean, recently.
2: On the last year's tour? Yeah, last
0: year. Which was a novel idea.
2: That's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, they were always doing these great environmental things. I remember they would just take hours and hours and hours to sound check like five or six hours to sound check because they were having contact mics on all kinds of. I remember at Hartford. Connecticut was an outdoor show, and it started raining, but then they had done this thing where they had run contact mics out to the train tracks that were adjacent to the property because they wanted to feed the train rolling by into the mix. And I don't remember if that was successful or not, but there were a lot of, sort of big ideas. And then they, they had a, there was a... In Connecticut and in San Francisco, we had to procure a live goat for the show and the goat got on the stage in Connecticut but um, the Great American Music Hall would not allow goat inside the club because of because they serve food oh so it's a restaurant hmm. so so if you're a goat you can only enter the Great American Music Hall if you're dead <laughs> and to be served but if you're alive you can't go in
0: I wonder if that I mean just uh, just
2: for those goats who might be listening
0: <laughs> right
1: wow no goats were harmed in the making of this documentary. Yeah. They're was, just
2: they were just like deeply frightened, but not harmed. Were
0: the goats supposed to
2: like bog? Yeah, that was the idea is they would bring the goat on stage and have it bleat into the microphone, but they were just so terrified and so it was actually kind of a great sort of pre show It's all these people lined up outside the Great American Music Hall and there was just a goat tied on a rope. <laughs> 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 just on the sidewalk. <laughs> People were lining up thinking, what, are, are, what have we gotten ourselves into? What is going to happen inside? It's just a very disorienting uh, way to prime people for the show. <laughs> um, but that's how all that started, you know, and that was, that's how all this filming of Tony Conrad began.
1: You mean Faust led you to Tony Conrad? No, he would already lectured at SFAI already.
2: If he had been there, it wasn't while I was there. Oh. I learned about him through the Faust Record. I'd seen the Flickr film at SFAI, but I learned about him through the Faust Record and through that tour I met Tony the day he performed. I mean I sort of met him while I had my camera on my shoulder and then I was filming him a couple hours later doing this incredible drone performance. So I you know, I sort of was thrown into this whole mix and then had to retroactively kind of learn about what he was all about. And then, because I got caught up, and as I was filming him over the years, I just kept filming and filming. And eventually, he, he liked me enough and trusted me enough to just let me make a proper film about him. But even that was sort of a complicated experience.
1: I'm glad you went with Champs, shall we say. And, and, and that brought fulfilled this huge project.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You have all this material, you might as well finish it. I mean, and, and just things kind of lined up in a way where I, I was able to. You know, it's very possible that couldn't have, that might have not happened. It might still be this project I'm going to finish one day. But, uh, you know, it's the thing with documentaries, you know, there's always n- new elements to the story unfolding. And even as I'd finished the film, and, and he actually died the day after I finished editing. You know, then I wonder, it's like, well, uh, hmm, I could keep going. Like, if I'd kept going on the film for another year, there would have been all these different other things that would have emerged. That's but, for part two. But you just, at some point, you just cut it off and mm-hmm. call it a day and let the world revolve around it.
0: Yeah, you have to draw the lines sometime.
2: Sure. <laughs> Sometimes.
1: Wow, so that's, wow, what a saga. Um, You know, I'm worried that a lot of people don't know who Tony Conrad is, and I thought I'd give you the wonderful burden of explaining how original he was or or something along those lines. Oh, sure.
2: You know, a lot of people knew him as a filmmaker. A lot of people knew him as a musician. A lot of people only knew him as a teacher. Some people knew him as all those things. Uh, and that was sort of part of the idea was to bring all those different ideas together: musician, filmmaker, visual artist, teacher. Was I, he a writer
1: too? Kind of.
2: Uh, he did a lot of writing, and actually, there's a book that's forthcoming. That's his massive sort of history of music project. Um, I don't know when it's being released, but sometime within the next year, I think. So he did all these things, and part of the reason was to make them, to make this movie was because people didn't really know who he was. And if we could sort of encapsulate it and, and put it together in a way that people would understand that he's just really fun, really smart, incredibly cool, and was kind of hugely influential on a number of different artistic avenues. Now, you haven't seen it. You haven't, you haven't, you're seeing it tonight, right? So, I mean, this connection between Jack Smith, you know, the legendary underground queer filmmaker to his connections with Lamont Young and the Theatre of Eternal Music, his connections with John Cale and the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed. And then uh, he jumped forward mm, 12 years there and then he kind of befriends Mike Kelly and Tony Arsler when they were grad students at CalArts and they all became friends and collaborators and he cast them in his films and they cast them in their films and videos. I mean, he was ahead of the curve. I mean, he sort of spotted this talent young. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, later, uh, Igor Vamos from the Yes Men was a student up at Buffalo in the 80s, and he sort of crossed paths with Tony Conrad. So when you start to see all these connections, you know, he, he was sort of there for a lot of, a lot of stuff and had impacted a lot of people.
0: How long was he at Buffalo?
2: I want to say 35 years. Wow. That might not be completely accurate, but it's something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he only, he, he only officially retired just months before he died. I think he retired right at the very end of 2015. Finally. Wow. You know?
0: He was teaching film? Media. Media.
1: Oh, media
2: you know the media department at buffalo was sort of renowned for a long time hmm. we talk about that a little bit in the film
1: that's uh, beyond just mere filmmaking
2: well i mean media was just more inclusive and yeah. and there was a lot of a, there was a, and there was a lot of electronics involved in that hmm. video television <laughs> i mean it was sort of all inclusive but we talk about in the film, and actually Tony talks about the film, that people who were going through the media department at this time, like late seventies and early eighties, you know, Foucault was going there, uh, uh, Morton Feldman was teaching there, Hollis Frampton's teaching there, Paul Scherz is teaching there, um, uh, the, the Vasulkas are teaching. So it was sort of this hotbed of of media thought and creation going on, and a lot of it was just also that. It was a perfect storm, you know, the economics in New York state were organized at that time to really heavily fund the arts. And because Buffalo was underfunded in that regard, they got a lot of funding. You know, New York City was, you know, pretty well funded, but Buffalo was, well, here's another place. And so they they almost in some ways got disproportionate amounts of money to and and cost of living was very cheap there. So you could really have a fruitful career as an artist living in Buffalo at that time. It's a really neat city. Mm. Um, And we talk about that, or Tony talks about that a little bit in the film, that that Buffalo really became the place where he could really do a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, cheaper economics. So,
2: And it has an interesting relationship to New York City. It reminded me in some ways of the relationship that San Francisco has to Los Angeles in terms of media production or critical theory or something. There's a lot of really interesting collective art spaces and video spaces and, you know, and stuff in Buffalo because there's a lot of um, recent graduates who are kind of working in the community there. But then there's New York City, you know, the eight-hour train ride away, which is everything. And it's really sim- It sort of reminded me of what it was mm. like when I moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you know, to professionalize, as it were. Because <laughs> mm. when I was, you know, when I was living here, there still were a lot of artist-run spaces and a lot of collectives. And, yeah, I mean, it was still expensive for me at the time. But when I moved to L.A., I thought, man, this place is dirt cheap. In the 90s, you know, like you get a whole apartment for $299, dollars mm-hmm. move-in special. <laughs> it's not like that anymore. L.A. has gotten expensive, but it's not like this place.
0: Right. Yeah. And there were film labs here, too. Sure. And there aren't any. All,
2: yeah, you could do a lot. I remember getting, doing my telecine and going to Diner Allied and going to Monaco and going to all those places that used to be here.
0: Mm.
1: That's true, but you had to go there because there was a almost a technological or whatever you want to call it threshold that you wanted to surmount, which you couldn't do here.
2: It's funny. Yeah, I tried to ingratiate myself with people who were working in you know post production houses and working with Avids, and and it just I couldn't get anywhere. You know, I think it was because it was sort of a. Uh, a smaller market let's say there were fewer avids and they were more closely guarded and the environment at the time in Los Angeles was like everybody has an avid we have an avid do you know how to work it does that guy know how to work it who knows how to work this thing you know it was sort of like that and so I was like well listen they're just going to hire some schmo to work this thing and train some schmo might as well be me you know um, I couldn't get any access when I was here You know, if someone had a job editing on Avid, they weren't going to share. And down there, it was just sort of like, yeah, there's like, we got three of them. Do you know how to work it? (laughs) So so I just sort of like volunteered myself. Said I'll learn this stuff. I mean, this is where it's all going. Right. You know, I knew that I was like, I don't want to be using Sony video controllers to try to edit videotape. I mean, that's. That's just an intermediate solution. That's not really where it's going. And now look where we are. I mean, it's funny. If I I had been a student and graduating with Final Cut Pro on my laptop like a lot of students 10 years later did, maybe I would have stayed in San Francisco. I mean, I went to Los Angeles because of the job opportunities and the technology opportunities that were available.
0: There's so much more going on there. Well, it's, yeah. what in is it, film.
1: 30 to 50 times yes. bigger accessible population?
2: It's a huge place. Least. It's a huge place. And, it, and I've really seen it grow and really mature in a nice way since I've been there. It's become much more cosmopolitan. And, and the part of town I live in, I live in Echo Park. And, and, uh, oh, yeah,
1: it's been a you, hip a long time.
2: You know, and, you know, this whole area of Silver Lake, Echo Park, yeah. Highland Park, Lincoln Heights, downtown L.A., South Pasadena, Glassell Park, Eagle Rock, this whole sort of northeast Los Angeles is just um, sort of thr- you know, booming with with creatives. I mean, all my friends are writers, musicians, dancers, filmmakers, documentarians, uh, performance artists, I mean, just everybody. It's really, really nice that, that I can still have that community there. And um, most of my friends here are... are from that community have you know gone somewhere else. But that was part of being a student I think at the San Francisco Art Institute. It's like a lot of there are a lot of international students and they came to school here and then went somewhere else.
1: So right. yeah, I have an a- aphorism, first technology, then culture. Uh, in other words I mean you couldn't even do zines, for example, really until the de- the publicly available Xerox machine was advantage,
2: right? What are you going to do? Like create your own printing press? And <laughs> you could do mimeographs, I guess. Yeah, that
1: was. But then you just associate them only with high schools and grade schools. And but yeah, I mean, what can
2: think you think really you c- you do can with have one can, at home? Well, what you, I mean, that's the thing, though. All you can really do with a mimeograph is typed text. Yeah. Like, when if you wanted to have graphics, you needed to be able to make a photocopy. Because that's, that's when you could do clip art and graphics. And yeah. Steel. Yeah. No, the photocopier is just an incredible invention. I
1: agree. Underrated.
2: Yeah. I think it's just as important as the printing press. <laughs> I went to, in <laughs> Germany, I went to a museum of the photocopiers. Oh, wow. There's a museum of photocopiers in yeah, Molheim, Germany. It's in a storefront. I took pictures in it. It was great. It was like, of course, someone's had a museum of and they have really old ones too, of like these old photostat, you know, with the thing where you blast the thing and copy it and develop it. And, and of course, what's great is all the '80s and '70s and '80s ones, which were molded in, the, molded in that sort of ubiquitous eggshell beige plastic, have all turned a weird yellow color.
0: Mm.
2: It's really great if you ever find yourself in Molheim, Germany.
1: M O L L M
2: U L H E I M I think Mulheim. There might be an umlaut in there. I don't know. (laughs) Over the Um, U. If I'll email you the pictures, uh, if they're probably on my phone. But it was great. I thought this is perfect. Of course, there needs to be this. I mean, it'd be a great traveling exhibit paired with zines. Oh yeah, it would really be really cool. And you know, there's Somebody's out there collecting that old junk and contextualizing it and putting the make and year. And <laughs> it's going to be great.
1: I think they have some ancient, I mean, some museum of home computers down somewhere, Silicon Valley-ish. But it must be have to be the size of a huge warehouse now. I mean, I remember when it started with this, the Sinclair and... I can't even remember the names now.
2: Oh, I'm sure, like my son now looking at the first generation Macintosh would be like me looking at the very first t- television, you know, oh, yeah. with the you know the mm-hmm. nine-inch screen inside of a giant wooden console. When I was a kid, thinking like, what is that? You can't even get anything on there.
1: Black and white.
2: Yeah. No, I know. What
0: Was it called the Apple II or something? Uh, yeah. the, the,
1: I remember it was as recently as '94 or '3. It was just a little standalone thing. Yeah. With a separate keyboard in front. One of those Apples. And then you got the one of the early
0: laptops. Oh, a PowerBook of Power, some sort. Yeah, it was actually. 180. PowerBook
1: 180 was a big deal and very expensive.
2: Yeah, those black ones.
0: Right. And gray. Yeah. Gray, you know, dark gray, dumb, gray yeah, gray. all black and white. Right. You could have a dial-up modem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Plug it into your phone line. That
2: was pretty cool. Yeah. That was pretty amazing. Yeah.
1: And then now look at us. We're so much as. I hope that most people who watch their film aren't going to end up watching it, like I see so many on an iPhone.
2: How dare Yeah, I don't know. There's not much you can do about that. It's, that's true. If, if that's the way it, it takes to reach an audience, I'm, I'm fine with reaching an audience that yeah. way. I mean, Jesus. I'd rather they come see this film in the theater. Uh, with a, another radio interview I was just doing, we, we got into a nice conversation about the whole concept of six-channel sound.
1: Jesus. You know, five, Is that what's on
2: it? 5.1. Mm-hmm. You know? That's
1: six-channel sound? We mix
2: this thing in six channels so that because you know, one of the things I remember from seeing these Tony Conrad concerts was just they were, they were immersive. And the sound was really loud and really immersive and really polyphonic. And you could hear all these different tones and harmonics. And it was just it was, it, so I was telling the guy who was mixing the movie when we were mixing it, like, we've got to try to approximate. I was trying to explain, you know, this is what it sounded like. And so we really, even when we only had a stereo source, we were able to use certain plugins and spatializing software,
0: Mm.
2: you know, um, convolution reverbs, whatever you have, you know, to try to create this really big environmental feeling to the sound and really use the surround channel heavily. Typically, you know, surround channels are used just to heighten atmospheres, or Mm -hmm. you hear rain coming out of them, or little things. But I was really, because it's a music film, uh, really trying to mix it with using all six channels. Like, that should really go to the subwoofer, and let's have the left and the right. You know, let's have these frequencies moving around. So we even did stuff where we had certain frequencies that would kind of travel in the space. Neat. It's, some of the, it's one of the things that the spatializing plugins can do to create that sense of space is they'll have certain frequencies that can kind of float. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like they're kind of moving through space, which is very much like what Tony's performances were like. Or if you've ever been to Lamont Young's Dream House in New York, you know, when you move your head... Or move around in the room, but usually it's just as subtle as moving your head. The frequencies all change.
0: Hmm.
1: What's this dream house? I never heard of that.
2: Yeah, it's still there. You can go. I mean,
1: you can visit it, pay yes. money and visit?
2: I don't think, I think it's free. Maybe there's a donation.
1: Wow, you have you to You can Google, Google it. it. <laughs> okay, I never heard of it till now. Thanks. I'll go see that.
0: Is yeah. it temporary?
2: No, it's oh. been there for years.
0: Wait, is he still alive? Yes.
2: Hooray. Yeah, he's still alive.
1: Did you ever meet him?
2: I did not meet him. Uh, You will. I well, I hope. Yeah, maybe. He's probably not gonna like me very much after he sees this movie. Uh, He, he, you know, you know, he and Tony had a contentious uh, breakup, and uh, over the years, and we go into that in the film. I guess you're a little bit of a, at a disadvantage here talking to me without having seen it yet. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, but, you know, that was, that was kind of the, the, the big uh, split was, was between Tony and, and Lamont over Lamont's um, refusal to release any of the recordings that they had spent years making together. Together. Wow. Yeah. I and, didn't
1: know that one partner could stop it
2: yeah and, and they and it was like they had a fundamental disagreement about the creation of the work that was never really resolved. Um, you know Tony was always under the understanding that the work was collective and communal and that it was owned by no one and owned by everyone and Lamont Young felt that everything they did was owned by him, and they were just his. They were musicians in his band, so to speak. Um, Mm. That's not maybe the language that he used. And that was very troublesome for Tony and sort of really affected him for many, many, many years. He was very upset about it.
1: Well, let's, let's in, in Lamont Young's favor, let's say that I know he was famous a million years ago, but I frankly never heard of Tony Conrad way back then when I heard of Lamont Young, so maybe that has something to do with it, the fame quotient.
2: There's something to do with that, and it's controlling of the image, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like if you, uh, if you have a bunch of partners, and you just sort of make sure that their contributions are minimized, Mm. uh, that's how you keep yourself in the spotlight.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid Uh, so.
2: And, uh, and, you know, we did, I was asked about interviewing Lamont Young for the film, and, and I, I, I don't think he even would have done it, but, uh. But I also felt like you know we're presenting a counter history here. You know, yeah. like uh, Lamont Young's sort of esteem and 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 canonical kind of uh, um, uh, position in the in the music culture is 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 huge. You know, yeah. and Tony's is almost non-existent, and so we're sort of presenting a counter story. I mean, you know, to what has been normally accepted. And, uh, and I think you'll find it very interesting.
1: <laughs> oh, don't worry. I don't have any favoritism in favor of Lamont Young. I, I mean, he's, he, he's an abstraction to me, too, just like Tony Conrad. But it's just that I just have stuff from him, like, at least 35 years ago. And I have a file on him. It's just that.
0: Yeah. Really
1: Someone sent me a bunch of Lamont. Well, I'm not even going to go into this. Let's go somewhere else. Yeah. But, um, wow. So, I, I'm sure it's a challenge to edit and, and keep the, the viewer on the edge of his, her seat, you know, when you have so much material. Uh, yeah, you know, I
2: I I'd thought about making a really long and difficult and imposing film because that would have been personally amusing, and Tony would have loved that, and and, and it would have been a kind of like a underground legend about the you three still could. the three hour Tony Conrad movie. It's like, have you been able to watch the whole thing? No, have you? No. I heard it's great. Yeah, I don't know anyone who's watched the whole thing. You know, there, I, there was some moment where I thought we could do that. That would just that would just be like the ultimate kind of fuck you thing, but. But then I thought, no, no, no. Let's. I wanted to make something that's really approachable and digestible and fun to watch. Yeah,
1: fun is a key word. Because
2: it was, there was a lot of fun in his work. So, so then the idea was, I'm going to make this more like a hit and run. Where I'm in 96 minutes, I'm going to jump into your eyeballs, scramble around in your brain, and then jump out of your ear, and you won't know what hit you. <laughs> <laughs> And and if you're confused about anything, open up a web browser.
1: Or just watch the film again.
2: Yeah, but I figured also, you know, we live in the age of Google anyway, so do I need to give long dissertations or long explanations about this work? All I No, I really don't. All I really wanted to do is set it up and contextualize so you can see how these different works fit together. And then if you want to go do the deep dive and listen to all 200 hours of Tony's... Just recently released, "Music of the Mind of the World" composition. You can do that on your own time. I'm just sort of showing you what's there. You know, I'm showing you what to look for. I'm showing you how it kind of how that fits with that, fits with that, fits with that. How these works are kind of tied together. Um, but then you can go and I mean, the flickers on YouTube. I mean, if it's not, it, it will be. It pops up all the time. I mean, these, these works are out there that people can discover. I mean, I recommend seeing it, if you can, in 16 millimeter projected. It's really a magical mm-hmm. experience. And they're going to do that on Sunday.
0: Sunday. Yeah, at the they're Center for the, New Music. At the
2: Center for New Music, they're showing the flicker. Uh, tonight, before this film, they're showing Straight and Narrow, which is a bit similar. It is, does have a flickering quality, but it's really about the dance of horizontal and vertical lines. With a soundtrack by John Cale and Terry Riley.
1: Wow. Um, now there's a combination: John Cale and Terry Riley. I didn't know they worked together. Oh gosh, I'm remembering. I
2: can't remember the name. what is the house of. It's from some album that they've done. Oh, it's. I've forgotten. See, I just can't remember things. I need notes. <laughs> you, you can look it up. That's why I always tell people. It's like I don't remember. You can look it up. <laughs> Google it. John Cale, C-A-L-E.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, John Cale. Terry Riley. Yeah. Who used to live three blocks away from here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Seventies. Hmm. Wow. What a... So, so this is like an introduction to some kind of aspect of the avant-garde... In the last 60 years, 70.
2: Yeah. Uh, I was just uh, doing an interview with an art journalist uh, that I know. And she was just saying, she's like, wait a minute. I, I know about this stuff. I write about this stuff. Knowing about art and writing about art is my business. It's my job. It's my passion. How did I not know about him? That way. and she was actually really excited to learn like I can't believe she's if I'd known about this guy 20 years ago I would have been following this work I love this work it's so great I and and so you know the conversation was sort of revolving around like how can this someone so prolific and so interesting have gone unnoticed for so long you know part of it was him you know he wasn't really into publicizing his work or Commercializing his work in any way, I think it was, I think it was Walter De Maria who suggested to Tony that he could make different editions of the Flicker. You know, do a yellow one and an orange one and a purple one. And you know, he said he was just not interested in any of that kind of professionalism. At or all. marketing or careerism. Yeah, careerism. he's like I don't want to make a career out of this stuff. I wanted to just make this film because I was interested in this idea.
1: Yeah.
2: I remember your books, you know, when I was in high school. Oh, good. Seeing them in the local bookshops and just thinking like, wow. I felt it was like a it was like a window into a whole other world. So I was about I was like 16 in 1985 and I was thinking that's when I was just like, wow. I was kind of scared by them a little at first, <laughs> but I got into Ballard, and then it was sort of like it all happened. It all sort of opened up, <laughs> you know. But I remember them for sure. Great, I'm I, and I remember thinking, "Who are these strange maniacs making these things?"
1: <laughs> I'm am just lucky that they're even accessible to you. I mean, this is like a home business. This is not a no. I mean, corporate. I remember
2: building walking by bookshops in Palo Alto you know mm. and they would have the research books in the windows and I would just like look at them and go in like the industrial handbook That, was, yeah, like cool. that really I, was, I remember going through that and saying where's this from it felt like it was from another planet good and it was great
1: that's that might be my most influential one for the long term industrial because And some, incredibly
2: strange movies. And, oh yeah. You know, I mean all like I just remember I'm trying to remember which ones I still have if I have any of them. And I guess the Microsoft thing is totally out I don't remember.
1: Yeah. Well it's it's been harder to Get my books out there as you can imagine with the death of so many thousands of bookstores and distributors and wholesalers and all that
2: these things were hugely I mean they were hugely influential for me you know in a weird way like you're saying like oh it's a home business but I remember thinking like this felt like something like so underground and so just like dialed into something that I had no access to prior you know so it mattered It mattered. It was getting out there. I lucked out. But you know how that is. Even, you know, you make stuff, you don't really know who's really on the receiving end. No. You hope for the best. Yeah. It's like putting a message in a bottle. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or in your case, like a lot of messages in bottles.
1: (laughs) That's because books are cheap and portable. You don't even need an electronic device to. Experience them, yeah,
2: yeah, oh, okay. there are at least
1: two yeah. It's it's yeah. funny. Um, oh, okay. I,
2: I just I really want to take a picture of all the
1: all the spines there. Oh, you can. It's that's easy.
2: It's so, so great.
1: <laughs> well, so wait a minute. Where did where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area. I was
2: born at Stanford Hospital. I grew up. My you know my parents lived in. Uh, we lived in Los Altos, Cupertino. then my parents split, and I, my brother and I moved with my mom to a house in San Jose. Yeah. Then she remarried, and then we moved up into like Menlo Park area back up in the peninsula. and I grew up around there. I went to junior college and back in Cupertino, and then I ended up at the Art Institute and living in the city in the early '90s.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, I'm born and raised in Bay Area. Wow. Yeah, that's why it's always a you know a trip. That's probably why these were more widely seen because I was you know I was living in a college town.
1: Yeah, that helps. Kepler's and, maybe had. The, yeah,
2: pro- exactly like that kind of stuff.
1: There were some great used bookstores in Palo Alto I went to, and I haven't been there since the seventies. But except to give a talk at Stanford, I suppose one or two. But yeah. I, I mean, I liked it down there. I mean, at least there's bookstores and university being there really helps, I think.
2: I mean, I don't know what it's like now, now that oh. it's become kind of like... The
1: whole thing tech. is... Tech. Tech. Technopolis.
2: Yeah, everything, you know.
1: No, it's are, it's... are there
2: still bookstores on University Avenue? I doubt it. I mean, I can't imagine.
1: I'm. I'm a little worried about the fact that no one I've heard no one buys DVDs anymore for movies but, but that worries me that they all stream it or something and I hope they they pay you for streaming uh you, yeah, the filmmaker, you get some for sure you get a little
2: yeah it's sort of funny you know like we're, it's like as we go forward we're moving backwards in some strange way because before home video oh yeah If you wanted to see movies, you had to see it in the theater, and it was like you'd be in rep, you'd be in repertory, right, where a movie would show up. Hey, they're running that again, or there'd be second run and third run theaters. But nobody owned movies in their personal collection. Yeah, you didn't own movies, and so in a way, we're kind of moving back towards well, we just don't own the movies. Yeah, we. This idea that we grew up with, we can own and collect movies, that's a really new thing. Yeah, that only started in the eighties.
1: Yeah, 80s to
2: 90s, and then and now. I mean, books obviously very different. That's been around for a long time. But for but for, for the first, geez, 80 years, hundred years of cinema, nobody owned. Nobody. No. I mean, maybe somebody had a print. Rich they, people, they got, or they, or you got a 16 millimeter print yeah. at a garage sale of some B movie or something, and you got a projector, and you know, schools could have prints of films and stuff yeah. like collect in collections. But nobody really owned You're right. films We've, personally. Feature Hollywood feature films. Nobody owned. It. Like I said, you could get some weird stuff on sixteen mil, but nobody really owned that. And so we're kind of moving back towards maybe. That's maybe I don't weird. need to own. Maybe I don't need to own movies. Maybe I don't need to. I don't know. I still like owning books.
1: Well, I I like books because they're so fast. You don't have to turn it you don't even have to turn it on switch yeah and I like to mark them up just because I feel the muscle memory thing helps the real memory oh yeah of course but
2: it's like I remember everything when I uh, take notes
1: but one thing I do like about the issuance of movies on DVDs is frankly the outtakes like sometimes there's I like them almost. At least as much as the movie, if not more.
2: Yeah, and I think well, I think the thing that really made DVD you could do the
1: three hour version. I could. We've talked about
2: it. we are compiling additional materials, as we could call it. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I think that the DVD really cracked open for like the you know film film goers and film enthusiasts was the idea that you'd have commentary tracks.
1: Oh, I love that. I and those are
2: that. really. Fun because that's when you get. I mean, if someone does a good commentary track, I've heard some really boring ones mm. where people say, Oh, here's a wide shot. I remember that. Oh, here's a close up. What lens did we use? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I've heard somewhere just like, Wait a minute, you're just going to describe everything I'm already seeing? Unless, of course, it's transcendental, like Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the Total Recall uh, audio commentary. Whoa. Have you heard, someone's made yeah. a comp- best of compilation on YouTube. Oh, it's so good. He's like, oh yeah, this is the part where the guy gets shot. Oh, that's really good, and God, that's really amazing. <laughs> it just goes on and on like this for an hour and a half. <laughs> really funny. Um, I used to do a lot of. Uh, I used to do a lot of that. Added, they call it added value. I used to do a lot of that added value for DVDs as my day job.
0: Oh, yeah. cutting those
2: little making of documentaries and little behind the scenes documentaries, and I got to do a bunch of great Paul Verhoeven movies.
0: Ooh, he's good. You
2: know, and he always did the best commentaries because he would just, he would get into subtext on everything all the time. You know, he wasn't one of these people who was just said, you know, describing what you're seeing on screen. He would just talk about what's underneath all of this and why are we doing this and what is the meaning of all of it. And he was, always did the best commentaries, really, really great. I remember once uh, the company I was working for, uh, we, did the, uh, we did the Basic Instinct Deluxe DVD, and we made the whole documentary about the protests during the shooting here in San Francisco when you had all the ACT UP activists trying to stop the shooting because you know, they'd gotten a leaked copy of the script where um, the killer was supposedly bisexual or lesbian, and, and, you know, and there was a lot of resistance to that. You know, in that sort of uh, cliche representation, and so they were trying to, they were marching in the streets and shining flashlights in the camera and really trying to shut the movie down. And in a strange way, kind of ended up creating more publicity for the movie. Um, but uh, but I remember uh, my friend Jeffrey Schwartz, who was in charge of all this and producing all these, had this brilliant idea to actually record an audio commentary with Camille Paglia who did her basic instinct audio commentary. And so we were having a lot of fun in making these DVDs. This was in the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. Right, it's like that heyday of kind of DVDs with lots of deluxe editions with extra bonus features. And so we we did all those extra bonus features and we got to do some great stuff. remember when we did the uh, Rambo box set, we actually got in and did interviews with Howard Zinn and Tom Hayden and did whole documentary, <laughs> just like had people like this doing commentary tracks. And, and, you know, basically the studio was, their whole attitude was if you're, if you're under budget and it passes legal, we don't care what you do. <laughs> we just need stuff. Just, we need a lot of stuff for the third disc. Just, just make a bunch of stuff. Just, it has to pass legal and don't go over budget. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we got away with all kinds of crazy stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't, like, completely nuts or gonzo. It was just really smart and really interesting. Imagine the Howard Zinn commentary track on a Rambo movie, right? Like, that's really fun. Or Like I said, the Camille Paglia audio commentary on Basic Instinct is fantastic. Wow. You know, it really is great. And um, just some fun things like that. No, so I did a lot of, that was my bread and butter gig, you know, for a long time before I started really doing documentary features. So I got to do the making of Blue Velvet, which was really fun. I did Starship Troopers. I did uh, RoboCop. I did, you know, because it was really fun as we were working with MGM and they were reissuing a lot of catalog titles which were always the most fun to do because that's when you get the cast together after 10 or 15 years and then you interview them about the film and there's all this perspective that's really, really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes when you're doing all this added value behind the scenes stuff for a film that's currently in production, you just get sort of that, that kind of basic presser interview, you know, well, my character, this is all about this and... You know, you get that press junket feeling from the from the mm-hmm. talent interviews, but it's really different when you go back 20 or 15 years after a movie was done and say, now let's really talk about it. Mm. And they can say, wow, I was just a kid when I did that movie. I can't believe, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, all that perspective and hindsight comes in and it always makes for a richer experience. So we always loved doing the catalog titles more than doing the new movies. Uh, Just because it was, you know, and they'd also, you know, usually those catalog titles had achieved some kind of cult status or they just had some place in the culture so that that there was something meaningful about doing them, like doing the howling. You know, I love the Joe Dante one was so fun or doing stuff with John Carpenter and just, you know, really, really fun stuff.
1: I know, I can't believe Carpenter has a career as a live musician now.
2: Oh, I went and saw the concert.
1: I would have gone. It was too. great. I'm it was sure sold was out,
2: great. like huge venue, sold out. I mean, people, it's really interesting to think that the music from those films yeah. has really penetrated the culture in such a way that he can go out and play this music and people know the theme song from Assault from Precinct 13. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always, I remember though, as a kid seeing John Carpenter movies, like the him doing the music was always such a cool thing. I mean, obviously Halloween is that piece of music everybody knows. My kid can play it on the piano. It's really effective.
1: Who knew he'd have that second career as a Yeah, I mean, musician. you know,
2: he can't get hired as a director, but he can go out and go on tour and play this he music. He should be
1: hired as a director. Yeah, I know, I know. He made such good films.
2: I know. Oh, well. Now they're just remaking them.
1: Oh, that's right. That's what they do.
2: Yeah. Hmm. All right, so what else should we talk about? Uh, well, I
1: know. <laughs> it's funny to get detoured. Some of that it.
2: ancillary conversation might end up being good. I don't know. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, I mean, I actually have a weird purpose to try and get as many people as possible to, to, to be curious enough to see your film. That's really my overarching purpose. And to see a film about someone they've never heard of, but who was ahead of his time and and kind of uninhibited and trying out adventurous experimentation in a bunch of media and breaking the rules or at least playing at the boundaries of whatever rules exist. And
2: Yeah, I think the thing that's really come <laughs> forward and the word that people have used... Like coming to me and describing the film to me as they say it's really inspiring which is super cool because um, you don't have to know who he is but if you go on the ride and you just see how this guy engaged in sort of acts of creative resistance um, it's really it is inspiring you don't have to know his work I mean even someone was saying if you like experimental film and experimental music and I was saying if you like art and you like creative resistance and you like a pa- and if you have a passion for ideas, that would also apply, you know. So um, I tried to make. It's funny. It's like to take to make a film about someone who's a, an underground avant-garde artist and try to present it in a way that would make a high school art student get excited. Yeah. You know that, and that was you know when I was talking about making this crazy three-hour version. I mean, the uh, this was the flip side, which is like I want to make a film that. I wanted to see when I was 16 or 18. You know, that was, that was smart without being academic and, was, and, and still presented the work in a really fun and creative way, but it was still respectful of the work. And this lets you experience the work. I let the work have a lot of breathing room in the film. You know, so I, I just try to stand back and let that really come forward.
0: Thank you for joining us today at Research Conversations. We were speaking with Tyler Hovey about his film on Tony Conrad. We hope everyone gets to see it. It'll be coming to a city near you.